2: The Biden administration and governments around the world are cracking down on mergers. Hear my chat with industry heavyweights Rob Kindler of Morgan Stanley and Scott Barche of Paul Weiss at the Reuters Next
0: Conference. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash poweredbyhow.
2: Welcome to the exchange conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Lauren silva Laughlin, the Global Deals Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News. And I'm coming to you from Manhattan, New York. For this week's episode, I sat down with Morgan Stanley's Rob Kindler and Paul Weiss's Scott Barche for the Reuters Next Conference. They both agree the deal environment has gotten much more challenging, but disagree about what that means for the market overall. Plus, hear what they think about AT&T, Shell, Twitter, and other companies and the deal stratosphere. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reuters Next. I'm Lauren Silva Laughlin, Global Deals Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. Two great people here to talk to us a little bit about M&A, huge year. Scott Baruchet is Chair of the Corporate Department at Paul Weiss. He recently advised General Electric on its separation into three three traded companies, among other deals in his decades-long career. And Rob Kindler is with me, too. He's vice chairman and global head of mergers and acquisitions and a member of the management committee at Morgan Stanley, where he joined in 2006. And Rob, my information here tells me that you've been in the business for more than 40 years. Is that right?
1: Unfortunately, that's true.
2: 1970. Okay. Well, I would say that's fortunate because I got some data today from Refinitiv that shows that this year has been the most active in M&A since it started, since Refinitiv started record keeping in 1980, which means you've had the busiest year of your career. And that's sort of interesting, I think, against the regulatory backdrop that we're dealing with right now. So I, I wanted to start there to talk a little bit about how you're thinking of advising companies now that we know what the Biden administration thinks about companies coming together.
1: Well, I, I can start off and hand it to, uh, to Scott because uh, the specifics on the regulatory are, are um, actually pretty challenging right now. Uh, yes, it is a record year in volumes for M&A. You know, historically, the m and volumes have historically been tied to overall market cap. If you look historically as to, a, as to uh, what percentage of overall global market cap is represented by M&A, Historically, there actually is a correlation. So it's not surprising that in markets that are at historical high, that we've had historical highs. What, what is surprising, but not given the regulatory, which Scott will get into, is that uh, there aren't any big deals. Uh, right now, we're in a, we are in a situation where everything is, is getting very, very close scrutiny. And people are not going to do deals with as any issue on the regulatory side. We, we went through the prior administration where things were challenging under the Trump administration, but they also were unpredictable. So people tried deals like T-Mobile Sprint, which wouldn't have happened under this administration, and they got and they got through. Uh, I'm not suggesting that was necessarily an antitrust issue. It just would not ever have been tried. Under the current environment, so under the prior administration, things were challenging and completely unpredictable. <laughs> now they are challenging, completely predictable. And with that, <laughs> I'll turn to Scott for kind of what's going on on the regulatory side.
2: Predictably difficult. I mean, I guess with you know with Con mm-hmm. sort of heading the FTC, but she isn't the only one. Yesterday, I think, or this week, the UK regulatory body came out and said that Facebook had to just uh, divest Jiffy. Mm-hmm. It's really sort of globally that this is happening, not just in U.S. deals.
3: Yeah, it it is, Lauren, it it is absolutely global. We're seeing difficulties in China. We're seeing difficulties in the EC. We're seeing difficulties now with the CMA uh, in the U.K. But a lot of that was going on during the Trump administration. As Rob was saying, the real game changer now is the predictability of holdup. If there is a deal that has any arguable antitrust issue, or if there's any big deal that's strategic, not private equity, but any, any big deal that's strategic that doesn't have big antitrust issues under the laws that exist today, there's a very good chance it's going to get held up. And it's going to get held up because the the FTC and potentially the DOJ are, um, are enforcing laws that don't yet exist. They're enforcing laws that are their vision of what the laws ought to be, not the laws we've been dealing with you know, since Rob was a young man in, in uh, 1979. The, the, what we're seeing is delay out of the FTC, and we're seeing all kinds of roadblocks being put up for example, you know, which include long periods of delay, very, very, very onerous second requests and the potential for litigation. And then what what is, you know, I, I think a fair amount of administrative overreach. There's now a concept with the FTC that if you enter into a consent order, if you cut a deal with the FTC that allows you to get a deal done, you have to sign up for a 10 year pre-approval process, whereby you have to go to the FTC before you do another deal. And so so the way the current US framework works is you go through a second request if the FTC or the DOJ gives you one. And then if the FTC decides they wanna challenge the deal, they have to go to court to do it they have to beat you in court. Now what they're saying is on the second deal, after you do the first deal on the second deal, you have to go to them for approval and they can just say no. So we are, we are, as Rob said, we're entering into a world where boards and senior management teams are saying, if there's a deal that makes all kinds of strategic sense, but it's of any size, there's a good chance it's going to take you 18 plus months to get it done and, and you may not get it done. So that, that is a real... That's a real problem for boards and senior management teams that are looking at doing an M&A deal. Laura, just saying what Scott said, how chilling
1: this is. If you have two large companies that want to merge and there is a known overlap, which can be easily fixed, so it, it, it could be a small part of the business. So you basically, typically, you would go into the FTC and say, look, we don't compete except in this small piece, and we'll sell it. Well, now the FTC is going to say, well, you have to sign a consent decree in order to do that, and then guess what? The next 10 years, you, we have to get pre-approval of your deals, and that is a chilling, chilling effect. So uh, I predicted this for some time, but the fact is that I don't expect there to be any deals of size that, that involve strategics, and not I enforcing. Mean,
2: the sort of, the other chilling thing that you just raised, which I, I just want to see if you have some specifics, mm-hmm. is that they're enforcing laws that don't exist or trying to, so there's like the Royal, Delay tactic that's happening. But what do you mean by that? Is it are you talking about the sort of oil and gas kind of pushback that they're getting on pricing? Like, where are we seeing that specifically?
3: Nobody really would have thought that was a major issue, but the Biden administration basically said to all of the ah. regulatory agencies, look look to where you can to hold up deals. Then with the FTC and the with the FTC in particular. What the FTC has been doing um, is essentially, essentially trying to kill deals with time. All deals have a drop dead date. No, nobody's willing to wait forever to, to see if your deal gets cleared by the regulatory agencies. So they're using various means, um, second requests, pulls and refiles, essentially to try and, to try and delay deals. And then we're starting to see, again, it takes time to work through the system, but we're starting to see both on the DOJ and the FTC front, we're starting to see holdups in litigation.
2: I mean, and so you have that, but then the trains deal is interesting because I think that the sort of the team that got together now, uh, CP and KCS kind of announced their deal early on in the Biden administration or like late in the Trump administration. And And then the other one sort of came along afterwards. And so we're seeing almost this immediate transition based on administration, but there are some deals sort of hanging out there in limbo too, like the the S&P IHS market deals one. And then, you know, there was the Simon Schuster was announced before, right after the, you know, Biden got elected. And so we saw this like big push towards the end of last year to get these deals announced. And now they're just sort of hanging out there. So, you know, is next year going to be the year of unwinding a lot of
1: these. Yeah, I think on, on those, you know, we advised Kansas City on the on the uh, rail deal and we were able to get STB approval under the old administration. Then the new administration came in. Under this new administration, Aon would not have tried to do the deal with Willis. They, they just wouldn't have. Uh, they tried under the old administration and it just didn't get approved in time. The IHS uh and uh, SP deal were involved in that but it's all public that they've gotten all the approvals now but it has taken time. And you know to think that you're going to do a deal and it's going to take you 18 to 24 months, is difficult. But that but that does get to something near and dear to Scott. But I, is the fact that people are now doing spinoffs?
2: Right. I was going to actually bring that up. <laughs> you got to make money somehow, right? <laughs> so, and, and, <laughs> this yeah, sort of yeah, banker well, skepticism might say that you know if you can't put them together, break them apart. So we have GE, J and J, you know, really AT and T spinoff. Uh, Shell's getting pressured from activists right now, like. You know, it's, it's hard on one hand to sort of make the argument of creating value by putting companies together. And then the moment the regulars sort of stop that from happening, you, you create value by pulling them apart. But I, I imagine that's not, it's not that simple.
1: Well, ba- bankers are able to do it all. I mean, in, in the <laughs> same year, in the same year that we advised Time Warner Cable spinning off of Time Warner because you don't need to have content and distribution together, that very year we advise Comcast in buying NBC because of course it makes (laughs) content and distribution together. Look, these separations have been long in the the making. Now, some of them make sense with an asterisk and some of them don't. So if you take GE, for example, uh, which I think made perfect sense, that was not about a theory that if you separated the companies, there would be some kind of multiple arbitrage and the pieces would trade higher. in fact, you know, the stock, GE stock's down 11% since they announced it in a market that's flat. The S&P's flat since the day they announced it. But that was done really because those companies didn't belong together and they, and they could operate better separately. It made total sense, right? The AT&T spinoff of Time Warner, of course, made sense because it makes no sense to have distribution and content together this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, it never made any sense for them. We, we were on the uh, Time Warner side, but they spun that. They spun it off. But the issue with that deal is they combined it with a deal with Discover. What that did was a couple of things, but primarily it delayed the deal. Their, their kick out date is July of 2023. And a lot of people in the market wondered, well, why didn't you just spin off Time Warner? Right. You could have done that pretty quickly and then figure out the rest. And if you kind of look at it, the S&P is up since that deal was announced. Right. And uh, AT&T stock is down 30%, the Discovery stock is down 35%.
2: By the so, way, Netflix is up significantly too, and Viacom's not a, up quite as much. So there's an argument, not put these two together anymore. But, but then let's just sort of take that logic one step further and say, what if a regulator says AT&T and Discovery can't do a deal then or, or, or whomever but how how messy is that to sort of take them apart I,
1: I, I think it's easy because you know a lot of people believe they should have just spun off AT&T uh, should have just spun off Time Warner and figure out the discovery part later uh, at least that's the view of a lot of people I mean but if that deal doesn't ultimately get approved they'll s- still spin off Time Warner they just what won't Kevin do it alone.
2: What does he think about that?
1: I don't know. Scott's very close to him. But, uh, <laughs>
3: yeah. I just, um, but Scott can talk about the thinking around GE. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. Um, having represented <laughs> them, I'm not going to do that. But what I, what I will say is this. It's not, it's not an either or. The, the companies that are doing spinoffs, are not generally looking at giant M&A and the companies that are looking at giant M&A are not necessarily looking at spin-offs. I I think what you do see and what I think is really responsible for a lot of this, you know, spin-off trend is you've got very responsible CEOs and boards who are looking to create value. That that's basically the bottom line. So if you look at the companies that have been announcing spins whether it's GE or, or j and or IBM or whoever it is, they're focused on value creation. As Rob says, it's not about multiple arbitrage, although sometimes that's a piece of it. It's about creating more shareholder value. And when you're looking at our, at our clients who are focused on M&A, they may misstep from time to time on M&A, but they're, they're, looking, they're looking to create value. On the spin side, though, the, the, the fact that there are so many more spins than there used to be, and that there are major companies that are doing these spin-offs. I think it's just the idea of protecting the corporate bastion no matter what, is just it's not a thing anymore. We don't hear it, you know. I'm sure Rob will tell you the same thing. We don't hear it in boardrooms. We don't hear, well, I can't split up the company because. Well, 25 years ago, when I was coming up in the ranks, I worked in that part of the company. You can't, you can't let that, that kind of stuff, that, that's just not a thing in corporate America. Right now, it is, I really think it's just all about how do you create value in a fairly difficult environment? If, if you look back, Lauren, at the last
1: even 15 years, no new conglomerates have been formed. None. And that's because, in my mind, of activism and shareholders, and I'm not talking about just the activists, I'm talking about all the institutional shareholders. They want an explanation of what you're doing, right? And if you can't explain it in, you know, 10 seconds, you can't do it. You're not going to find, there's no more uh, Sarah Lees in the world. There's no more first brands. You know, Sarah Leone. M. am
2: trying to think of what. Their conglomerates. Well, too, but that it,
1: it, at least it's all industrial products. You, you could argue, just like with Johnson and Johnson, that at least they were certain they had it over-the-counter business, which they actually were able to develop because of their other business. So th- they didn't form those; they grew those, and th- it's just not happening. So what's happening is that people are taking apart conglomerates. And that's been going on a long time. And I think it's a lot to do. It's a lot to do with activism. And sometimes it makes zero sense. What was proposed for Shell makes no sense.
2: So they need I want to pop in, in here. Script. I have a question about this, because I did I did run the sure. data on activism. And it's true sure. that in the past couple of years, activists have been pushing more for breakups. Hinging on what you both have said, companies have kind of outgrown in some ways being together and the market's doing this in multiples, right? So there's parts of a company now that have this high growth multiple on in certain business and then that's sort of slower growing. And so you would think that it makes a lot of sense, for example, for Shell to kind of do what Dan Loeb is asking the company to do. You think about a company like GM, if you looked at it just on a multiple basis, you can say, hey, they have this EV group and put it on a Tesla multiple, you know, on paper, looks like it'd be a lot more value separate. I mean, in that, in that instance, you could see why they would keep the cars businesses together. You, you, you should a be different. a banker
1: out there pitching this, but the fact is it actually makes, it makes zero sense. Uh, it, it, it's what we call, it's just, it's just, it's math, but it's not strategy. So to say that Porsche, because they're making terrific electric cars, that Porsche should be spun off of Volkswagen, I mean, right now, uh, you know, some of these car companies like Lucid have a bigger market, forget about Tesla, have a bigger market cap than all the Volkswagen. reality and the reason why shareholders of Shell, when Loeb announced this, and by the way, he just put it in, a, in an investor letter. He didn't actually do anything activism-wise. <laughs> when, when Loeb announced this, the market didn't react at all. It actually went down a little bit of concerns that they might actually consider it. Uh, And these large oil companies need the cash flow from legacy businesses in order to invest in green energy. And they've been doing it not for one year, they've been doing it for 50 years. Remember the EPA was formed in 1968, it wasn't formed last week, right? Uh, So I I just think that that's math. It's not, yes, you can do the math today. Anyone who does math today on the multiples of electronic vehicle companies is going to be very disappointed five years from now. I mean, it's just, they don't make a lot of
3: sense, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it's, it's. there's no doubt. You you take take cars in exa- as an example, and you have, you know, car companies that have both combustion engine cars and um, electric cars. The cars are the same. The, the only difference is basically how they're propelled, right? Are they propelled with one kind of engine or are they propelled with a battery? It, it's, the the amount of synergies that go into that go into creating a car that's just once propelled one way and once propelled another way the synergies are enormous you split them up the dis become become giant it it becomes m- more complicated when you get when you get companies where they're making products or where they, or where the where the products aren't the same or the buy, buying market the consumer market is different And that's where you're seeing the the breakups occurring. That's where you're seeing the spinoffs occurring. But you know, like take an example like Honeywell. I mean, I actually defended against Honeywell a few years back when Dan Loeb said to split them up and he was wrong. He wanted to split off aerospace from industrials and it didn't make any sense and they didn't do it. And they've done spectacularly well since. And the reason is their synergy is in an operating system as Rob was saying, all industrials that that works across multiple multiple lines of business, and in that case, a what people may call a conglomerate really makes sense because the synergies outweigh the fit and focus concept of having smaller, more focused companies. But when you start talking about companies where you know where the synergies are high, the products look the same but have slight differences and you're just looking for a market arbitrage, that is that is not long-term value creation, that's long-term value destruction.
2: Yeah, I think it's Dow Chemical too that's split up and hasn't done so well since that happened. We've, we've maybe written that two or three times. But um, on activism, the other thing that we sort of coined around here and is, this is a sort of great resignation. So, you know, this week, obviously, Jack Dorsey was in the news leaving his post at, at Twitter. And I'm wondering, you know, if that creates some MA activity or, you know, maybe activism activity too. You just kind of have made a you know company without a leader or with an interim leader, or with a new leader, and this is sort of an opening for deals to get announced, or certainly for activists to agitate boards in inexper- more less experienced.
1: Oh, historically, you know, if there is. Uh, Leadership turmoil or leadership issues is absolutely an opening for activism or for MA. I mean, you take it, even small deals like Chico's, when they had a management change and they didn't have a CEO, and that brought in a, an unsolicited bid. And, and I do think that new CEOs can be under the gun for activism. Now, having said that, it's hard to imagine. Take a Twitter, for example, and again, it's not the best example because. The CEO there is, you know, obviously quite talented guy, and been around a long time. But no one's buying Twitter, right? So it's not it's not going to create an M and opportunity. Yeah, there just aren't going to be any big deals uh, in the foreseeable future. And when I say big deals, I mean we're not going to see many. Uh, there'll be some private equity deals and there's no regulatory issues, but strategic deals over ten billion dollars. We're just not going to see them. That doesn't mean the activity isn't high. It's huge, but it's not with those
3: deals. So I'm going to take I'm going to take a bit of the over on that. Maybe I'm just you know having oh, known good. Rob like for many years, yes. I'll be I'll be I'll be slightly more optimistic. Um, he's slight. He tends to be slightly more pessimistic. I, I, so first of all, I agree. You're going to continue to see more and bigger private equity deals. I did a fifteen billion dollar private equity deal. A couple of weeks ago, I, I mean, I never post financial crisis. I never thought that was in, that was even in the realm of the possible. We we saw a thirty billion dollar deal this year. It's it's yeah. Private equity is is a different asset class than it used to be, and we will see some big deals. So I agree with Rob on that. I, I think that there are going to be some deals, some companies, some strategics that are going to look at deals that are so compelling that makes so much sense. And that stand the test of time, and they're gonna be willing to take the chance that it takes 12, 18 months, two years to do. I I don't think you're gonna see a lot. I don't think I agree with that, but I do think you're gonna see some companies that say the deal is so compelling, the stars have aligned around strategy and stock market prices, um, CEO ages, those kinds of things. I think we are gonna see. Some, but there's no doubt the drop off is going to be spectacular from where we were last year and the year before and the year before that.
2: So I guess that leaves an opportunity. And you mentioned private equity. I, I sort of feel like this is where most of the deals are going to be in the next year. They have they have funds that are bigger than ever. The question, though, is, is how are they going to be able to invest that with the market where it is right now? I mean, they don't have a strategic buyer to compete with. That's a good thing. That means they're going to actually be able to get deals done. But, yeah, I, I think it was Henry Kravis that, that said many moons ago that anybody can buy a company. You have to you have to be able to sell it like they can buy things in this environment. But what are they going to be able to find that has any value for them?
1: Well, it is it, a challenge. They do definitely have an advantage over. Uh, They do have an advantage over strategics, but the things that are favorable for them now is that the quantum of leverage is still very high. But what really drives returns is whether you can leverage something at five, six, or seven times cash flow. That quantum of leverage is available. It doesn't really matter whether the interest rate is 5% or even 8% uh, on your overall returns, but it's a huge difference whether it's five times or seven times leverage. So between having leverage available and actually looking for lower returns, you know, they may say that they're looking still for high-teens returns, but in fact, a lot of the infrastructure funds and others, and those are big funds, are looking for much, much lower returns. So you can pay higher prices when you can get leverage and you're looking for lower returns. and. In the market now, which who knows, you know how long it's going to hold up. But the public markets now, most people don't think there's much return left in the public markets. Uh, so I, I think they will be active, and and, and I, uh, I will take a one dollar bet from Scott that there's night in 2022 there are not ten strategic deals over ten billion.
3: Okay, we've gotten more specific, Scott. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking that bet. If he wants to go with five, <laughs> I'm all over it. Okay.
2: okay. Well, we have about a couple of minutes to talk about the topic that's been very near and dear to my heart for many years before it became popular, and that is stacks. I have been obsessed with stacks for a very long time, and they finally had their year this year, and. Toward you know, sort of mid year, all of a sudden, we started to get some rumblings about the SEC, nothing specific has come through that's really stopped up the SPAC market. Um, so how does that reshape in the coming year? What does that look like? SPACs are a thing, they go away completely. You know, They've certainly done a good job of pushing up multiples of prices, EVs and otherwise.
1: I, I, I think as long as the equity markets stay as robust as they are, then there is a place for SPACs because it's really just another way of going public in a way that's you know somewhat easier than the, than the path of doing an IPO. Somewhat easier. The SEC is making it a bit more difficult, but there is a market for uh, companies that are too rich of evaluation for the private equity to go to, uh, not quite ready to on their own completely go public. It's more like a public venture capital for some companies. So I, I think they'll still be around, I, but I think that, that it has to be a unique set of circumstances. A lot of, by the way, the early technology on SPACs, which caused people to stay away from them, have been fixed. You know, er, the, the early technology was that you required a shareholder vote to get a deal done, so no seller would ever, would ever sell, although it could be subject to basically an option agreement. Now they fix that by taking steps to give people warrants so that the vote is basically insured.
2: Right. Uh, so look, I
1: think it's a place, but I. But but if the market goes down thirty percent, then the SPACs are not going to be around very much. Scott, uh, you have thirty.
2: Yeah, give, give me your quick, quick thirty seconds because <laughs> I actually have a little stack prediction that I want to be able to squeeze in here too. All right. Well,
3: my <laughs> my prediction, which is a which is a pretty safe one, is. Fewer number of SPACs, much higher quality of SPACs. So that's the good news for SPAC investors.
2: That is good news. Okay, my prediction is that there will be a lot of fees generated from companies that have recently gone public that decide that they don't deserve to be on the public market and they're going to get taken off the public market by by private equity firms or maybe even other SPACs. I hope so. I mean, that's a great (laughs) Yeah, well, thank with, you both so much.
1: Great, great thing about M and A is there's always a good time for M and A. You know, if, <laughs> if stock prices are up, you can use stock. If stock prices are down, you can use cash. You can SPAC, you can de you can go private. It's a great. Yeah, and in forty
2: work. years, there's no better time than the <laughs> present.
1: Oh, oh it's so. never been better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much. This was really great. I really appreciate your time, and thank you all for joining Reuters Next. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and ACAST. Also check us out at Breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols.